0: Hello and welcome to the Saint John's University Libraries Program Series, sponsored by the Library Programming Work Group. We inaugurate our fall 2005 program series with this podcast of a poetry reading by Maria Mazziotti Gillen. The poetry reading was coordinated and hosted by Professor Arthur Sherman of the University Libraries, Queens Campus. Ms. Gillen will be introduced by Professor Stephen Paul Miller of St. John's University English Department, Staten Island Campus. Thank you, and we hope you enjoy the program.
1: Welcome you to uh, St. John's University Library and to the first event of the fall semester for what we call the Library Programming workgroup Now, this is the first reading of a series of readings. And as you know, our reader today is Maria mazziotti Gillen, and I, I would introduce her, but I have someone here who knows her very well and would, is going to do a much better introduction. <laughs> Professor uh, Stephen Paul Miller from St. John's College on Staten Island, the English Department at St. John's University, uh, he's going to—he'll give the introduction to, for Maria. Steve.
2: When Garrison Keillor recently read two of Maria Masiati-Gillen's poems on NPR's Writer's Almanac, Keillor's relatively monotone voice seemed oddly suited for Gillen's poetry. Uh, Her poetry proceeds through a music of the ongoing. This poetic music is not aesthetically motivated as much as it seeks experiential integrity, but its sound and feel inevitably create a sense of generation and regeneration. If string theory and physics is showing us that subatomic particles can best be thought of as musical notes, Gillen's poetry demonstrates that the local is an instrument that plays a kind of subatomic music. With great sophistication, perhaps unmatched by any other poet writing in English today, Gillen uses a simple language that yields various effects. The blackness of garb that the speaker of the first line of her book, Italian Women in Black, says she wears, can be likened to a close to the vest yet flexible and ultimately fruitful writerly style. Gillen is a literary ad, Reinhardt, who subtly juxtaposes different blacks. A bricolage comes out of the seemingly set and frozen. She herself seems surprised by the stars that appear in the night sky she lays out. Gillen's language strives honestly to reach the objective and subjective facts of situations, She plays with this in the poem, Return, when she describes trees as straight as pencil strokes. Gillen's poems bespeak a steely, unadorned, yet paradoxically writerly and flowing manner for rendering her childhood and youth in Patterson, New Jersey, and many more subjects, such as spring and the sound of Passaic County Jail. If Johnny Cash is the man in black, Maria Mazzigala, Gillen, is the woman in black.
3: I'm the woman in black, but I've decided now to put um, to put a little bit of color with my black. But I still wear all black underneath, okay? Um, just as the old women in my from my childhood did, they always wore all black, black stockings, black shoes, black dresses. Um, this poem was called "Growing Up Italian." When I was a little girl, I thought everyone was Italian, and that was good. We visited our aunts and uncles, and they visited us, the Italian language smooth and sweet in my mouth. In kindergarten, English words fell on me, thick and sharp as hail. I grew silent, the Italian word balanced on the edge of my tongue, and the English word lost during the first moment of every question. It did not take me long to learn that dark-skinned people were greasy and dirty. Poor children were even dirtier. To be dark-skinned and poor was to be dirtiest of all. Almost every day, Mr. Landgraf called Joey a spaghetti bender. I knew that was bad. I tried to hide by folding my hands neatly on my desk and being a good girl. Judy, one of the girls in my class, had honey blonde hair and blue eyes. All the boys liked her. Her parents and grandparents were born in America. They owned a local tavern. When Judy's mother went downtown, she brought back coloring books and candy. When my mother went downtown, she brought back one small brown bag with a towel or a sheet in it. The first day I wore my sister's hand-me-down coat, Isabel said, that coat looks familiar. Don't I recognize that coat? I looked at the ground. When the other children brought presents for the teacher at Christmas, embroidered silk handkerchiefs and evening in Paris perfume, I brought dishcloths made into a doll. I read all the magazines that told me why blondes have more fun, described girls whose favorite color was blue. I hoped for a miracle that would turn my dark skin light, that would make me pale and blonde and beautiful. So I looked for a man with blonde hair and blue eyes who'd blend right in, who'd give me blonde, blue-eyed children, who'd blend right in, and a name that would blend right in, and I'd be melted down to a shape and a color that would blend right in. Till one day, I guess I was 40 by then, I woke up cursing all those who taught me to hate my dark foreign self, and I said, here I am with my olive-toned skin and my Italian parents and my old poverty, real as a scar on my forehead, and all the toys we couldn't buy, all the words I didn't say, all the downcast eyes and folded hands and remarks I didn't make rise up in me and explode onto paper like firecrackers, like meteors and I celebrate my Italian-American self rooted in this, my country, where all those black, brown, red, yellow, olive-skinned people soon will raise their voices and sing this new anthem. Here I am, and I'm strong, and my skin is warm in the sun, and my dark hair shines, and today I take back my name and wave it in their faces like a bright red flag. read I'm gonna read a poem from uh, Italian women in black dresses. Um and it's a poem that really resulted from uh uh two reporters coming. They both graduated from Ivy League schools and they came to interview me and then they took me to the street where I where I lived when I was a little kid and um they were asking me questions, and I could see, and the and the photographer was taking my picture, and I could see, by the way, he was looking at the street and the house and uh, the place that he thought it was the biggest dump he'd ever seen in his life. Both of them. I mean, they were very sweet, and they were lovely, and they wrote a wonderful, the woman wrote a wonderful article, but it was it was so odd to look at it through their eyes because that wasn't the way I remembered it. Perspectives. When I go back to look at it, when the reporter takes me back and snaps my picture in front of our house, the house I lived in until I was 11, the two family with the extra family hidden in the dank cellar where the father got pneumonia and died, the house seems to have grown smaller in size, the street too small and dirty, soda cans and wrappers in the gutters. The distance seemed shorter from our house to Pasquale's Corner and Burke's Candy Store where we got ice cream in coated cardboard containers. Vanilla ice cream packed solid and high over the rim that we ate with a special wooden spoon on the walk home. In Ventimiglia's vacant lots, we played through summers chasing butterflies we never caught and playing tag and -and hide-and-seek. In that field, I learned the only nature I knew, wild daisies and weeds and black-eyed Susans, the whisper of tall, wild grass that hit us if we squatted down the freedom of those summer days. The field that was huge and welcoming is covered over now with asphalt and cement and rows of garages, the earth plastered over, every inch of it sealed in. The reporter asked me questions, but my mind is caught in the past, caught in the scent of Zewu Yelmo's garden, The silk tassels of corn, the dew on the huge tomatoes, the smell of earth and growing things, and Zibu hiding in the garden from Zia Conchetta's anger. The neighborhood children, Big Joey, Little Joey, Judy, my sister and brother, gathered on the back stoop in the summer darkness, telling stories and smoking punks to keep away the mosquitoes. Often in the evenings, my mother would call us inside and wash us with the stiff washcloth she sewed and comb our hair. We'd walk to Aunt Rose's house to sit under the grape arbor in the evening, the men playing cards, wine in short classes before them, peach slices gleaming in the red wine. While the men played cards, we sat near the women who were sipping espresso and talking, listening to the stories they told till they forgot we were there, the stories of people we knew or had never met, stories that come back to me now, tart and sweet, a taste of mint and sugar, a drop of espresso in a big cup of milk. Those moments glow like the junk jewelry I buy in thrift stores. How can I tell this young reporter what it was like to grow up here? Her eyes see it as a slum, ratty and poor. My eyes remember those moments walking home from Zia in the dark, the world soft and shiny, the stars still visible in the Patterson sky, the music of stories and words singing in my head. Holding my brother's hand, I walk ahead of my mother. I am in love with the evening, the stars, my brother's hand, the cracked sidewalk, roses climbing fences and trellises, the vegetables and flowers the immigrants planted, the stone bird bass they built, my skin about to burst in its sweetness. The story stored up like treasure that I would find again and again as I grew older. I'm going to read a poem, uh, called After School. After school on ordinary days, we listened to the shadow and the lone ranger as we gathered around the tabletop radio that we always kept on the china cabinet built into the wall in that tenement kitchen. A china cabinet that held no china except thick and white and utilitarian cups and saucers, poor people's cups from the five and ten cent store. My mother was always home from Ferraro's coat factory by the time we walked in the door after school on ordinary days, and she'd give us milk with Bosco in it and cookies she'd made that weekend. The three of us would crowd around the radio listening to the voices that brought a wider world into our Patterson apartment. Later, we'd have supper at the kitchen table, the house loud with our arguments and laughter. After supper on ordinary days, our homework finished, we'd play Monopoly or Gin Rummy, the kitchen warmed by the huge coal stove, the wind outside rattling the loose old windows. We inside, tucked in, warm together on ordinary days that we didn't know until we looked back across a distance of 40 years, would glow and shimmer in memory's flickering light." And I'm going to read a poem. How many, I mean, you're all too young to remember white rubber girdles. Who remembers white rubber girdles? Anybody? Oh, a few people remember white rubber girdles. Okay, my. this is my mother's idea of how to make sure um, you remember a white rubber girdle. I don't think so, Noah. <laughs> uh, never mind, I'm not going to say it, I forgot that Noah was here. Um, <laughs> all right, so... Um, This poem is called When I Was a Young Woman. The white rubber girdles were very hard to get on and off, and you had to put talcum powder on. You young women don't know how lucky you are not to have to have all these constrictions and constraints on you. Um, I went to a Catholic college, too, but a very long time ago, and I taught. my first teaching job was at a girls' Catholic college, Caldwell College, where one of my jobs was to make sure that the girls' skirts were long enough. I was supposed to measure the skirts to make sure that they were a certain number of inches, you know, that they weren't too short. And one time a nun came by. I'll tell you two little stories about Caldwell College. A nun came by and reported me to the dean because I leaned against the desk. And she said it was unladylike. I was 21. Uh, That was unladylike. Hell, she'd see me now. Um, (laughs) And... The other one was that I was walking in the hall one day and a nun screamed at me, carry my laundry. And I I went, okay, sister. And I go over and she I get close and she recognizes me as a new faculty member. And she goes, oh, not you. And, And meanwhile, of course, she thought I was one of the kids. Anyway, this is called When I Was a Young Woman. When I was a young woman, I wore a white rubber girdle, though I only weighed 104 pounds and didn't have an ass, or at least I had a very flat one. But all the young women I knew wore girdles with snaps attached to hold up our nylon stockings. The girdle had little holes punched in it to let it breathe. Well, actually, it didn't breathe very well, and it was difficult to get off. Now I wonder if that wasn't the idea. Underpants, white cotton. The girdle over them. The stockings, a slip, a skirt. All those clothes intended to project our virginity, which, of course, they never did. It was little like my mother's idea that if I was home by 10 p.m., she had made sure I would remain a virgin. Or like the time, the third date I had with the man I would later marry, when we pulled up in front of the house in Dennis's old Plymouth, and we sat talking, my back against the door, while we discussed philosophy, because we thought we were great intellectuals. My mother rushed out of the house in her robe, her hair in pink foam curlers, a broom in her hand. She used the handle to bang on the window and yelled, My daughter does not sit in front of the house in a car. Get inside. Shy and awkward, Dennis leaped out of the car to open the door for me. He barely said goodbye before he jumped into the car to run away. Of course, he did come back, but I was so humiliated, I thought I'd never see him again. And, of course, the rubber girdle and the early curfew and all the other efforts my mother made didn't work at all. <laughs> um, I'm going to read a poem about when, when I was a kid, my father got me my first job. Because he did a lot of work. He was very interested in politics, and he did a lot of work helping to get out the Italian vote in Patterson. And so he called the mayor, uh, and the mayor said – he said to the mayor, my daughter wants a job in the library. And the mayor said, but it only pays 50 cents an hour. And my fi- – of course, this is how, how completely impractical I was – he, says, he said to me, only pays 50 cents an hour. The mayor says he can get you a better job than that. I said, I want a job in the library. Okay, so here I am in the stacks at the Patterson Public Library. When I was 14, I asked my father to help me get a job. He called the mayor and asked him for help. My father had worked very hard to get out the vote, so the mayor owed him a favor. When my father said I wanted a job in the Patterson Public Library, the mayor said, but that pays only 50 cents an hour. My father told me, I said I still wanted to work in the library. I loved to read, loved the branch library, loved the feel of a book in my hands. I went off to the public library where I was told to speak to Miss Cherry, supervisor of circulation. I went there after school, walked from Eastside High to the imposing white column library through the marble hall with its curving stair and bronze statues and oil paintings donated by the wealthy old families of the city. Miss Cherry gave me a sour look, sniffed, and told me quickly what to do. I knew she wasn't happy that I had been palmed off on her, and she let me know she didn't like it. Another young woman started the same day, a tall, beautiful, light-skinned African-American who came from an upper-middle-class family. Her father owned a funeral home. She had expensive clothes and straight hair. We both love books, and we like to talk to each other in the stacks. She knew Miss Cherry hated us both, but this girl, her name was Anthea, was more articulate and confident than I was. I was incredibly shy and tongue-tied, but she'd answer Miss Cherry back or give her a look that would shut her up immediately. Then Miss Cherry would scowl at me and find something wrong with what I'd done. She'd yell, and tears would fill my eyes. Never let her see you cry, Anthea said. It just makes her happy despite Miss Cherry I liked the job carrying books up into the stacks on the translucent thick glass stairs five floors of stacks lined with books I'd rush up the stairs and shove the books so I could read for five or ten minutes mostly poetry books by Amy Lowell Edna St. Vincent Millay Eleanor Wiley E. Cummings light cascading through the stacks the transparent floors and onto the poems that soared inside of me the words seemed to take wings against everything gray and ordinary in my life one day miss cherry accused me of stealing a book by shakespeare it was missing from where it belonged suddenly all my outrage at the way she treated me the disdainful way she always spoke to me rose up and shy mouse of a girl i turned on her My voice rose so everyone in the library heard and I said, I do not steal books and don't ever accuse me of doing something like that again. My shoulders flung back, my eyes saying if she didn't take it back, I'd slug her. She said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, of course you didn't. I don't know what I was thinking. And Anthea, standing behind us, flashed me a huge victory grin. I'd like to see Anthea again. You know, one thing about being the child of immigrants is that very often you're taught to be afraid of the greater world. And the thing that Anthea taught me, although sometimes I think it took me 25 years to get the lesson, is that if a bully tries to push, push you around, you immediately have to push back. You have to be louder and stronger and more determined than anybody around you. It took me a long time to hear what that kid was telling me. And um, I, I've tried to teach it to my children. And speaking of children, I think I'm going to read a poem uh about my son. And actually, I think I'm going to read a poem about my son that's in my new uh, manuscript. And um, it's called, Is This the Way It Is with Mothers and Sons? Is this the way it is with mothers and sons? This distance that opens between us like a canyon I can never bridge. At two, you'd sit in the wicker laundry basket and watch TV and play with matchbox cars, your eyes gray and clear. We lived in married student housing at Rutgers, those Quonset hut houses with their small square backyards and the morning glory vine I planted on the chicken wire fence and the sandbox grandma bought for you i watched watch you play with your Tonka trucks for hours and hold you in the circle of my arm, your head against my chest, your hair smelling of Johnson's baby shampoo. I'd read to you one more book, Mom. You'd say, just one more. That's the way it is with mothers and sons. I swear I could close my eyes and imagine you are still leaning against me while I read. As you grew up each year full of memories, the boy I drove to track meets, The way you ran track every day, though every day you threw up. Other boys so accustomed to it, they didn't seem to notice. Strange how the days and years spin faster and faster. The images, as you grow away from me, fewer but still clear. Clear until now, years since you graduated from college and law school, since your marriage, the birth of your children. Each year, the gap between us growing wider. This is the way it is between mothers and sons the mother unable to forget the boy she held in her arms the son wanting only to be to be the man he's become lover husband father and not any woman's son Okay, I'm going to read a poem about my sister. There's a lot of death in my poems lately, I'm afraid, because it just seems as though uh, my mother died, my father died, then my sister died. And so I had a few years where every time I turned around, I lost another person who was really important in my life. And um, anyway, my sister was a very important person to me. Um, uh, we lived across the street from one another, and... um She got rheumatoid arthritis when she was a relatively young woman and she was, she still went to nursing school and got a BS in nursing and was my brother's nurse for 20 years even when she had to be taken to work in a wheelchair. So I thought that she was indomitable. I really thought she was in the hospital a lot but I thought she can't die just the way I thought my mother couldn't die because she just was too strong to die. You know, you just think, well, this person can't. We actually thought my brother was going to find the cure for cancer when when my mother got cancer because it just seemed absolutely impossible that this woman, who was only about this big, but one of the strongest, most incredibly energetic women I have ever met, um, could ever die. She didn't believe it either until like the last three days, I think. Anyway, this is a poem to my sister. Laura, now that you are gone, sometimes I start to walk across the street to your house before I realize you died more than a month ago. The plaque you sent me with its sentimental words and pink flowers hangs in my den. You must have known you would die soon and wanted me to know you loved me, that we didn't say it to one another. Sister who was so different from me. Sister who called for me and I came to you, even slept all night in your hospital room in a hard plastic chair to make sure you didn't die in the night. Sister whose frail, twisted hand I held in mine. Sister who called me on my birthday that you were having trouble breathing. Mary, Mary, where are you? And then you sang, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, all your energy and desire to live caught in your husky, faltering voice that I hear in my head when I think of you. I must say I'm having a hard time. She's She's been dead five years. She, and I, sometimes I think that people who die on us, they, they, they move in. And, in fact, I, I have a, a poem in, in my new manuscript, about driving to Binghamton and driving onto the campus uh, one Sunday morning, I teach an intensive workshop and driving onto the campus and thinking that my mother was actually in the car with was actually having a conversation with my mother. And then when I got into my workshop, I had them write and I started to write myself, and I actually felt like I brought that brought her into the room with me. You know, I, I felt like she was actually there with me in that moment. Um, anyway, I want to read a poem about her from from an earlier book, and um, I just have to find Here it is. My mother told me once that she forgot how to cry. Um, she said it didn't do any good anywhere. What was the point? Uh, you might just as well carry on. Get up. Um, and, uh, it, my brother just reminded me of that the other day. He said, well, what would mom say? He, she'd say, get up. Don't, don't, uh, don't baby yourself. Get up and keep moving. Um, anyway, she told me she forgot how to cry. Soothsayer, healer, tale teller. There was nothing you could not do. In your basement kitchen with the cracked brown and yellow tiles, the sink on metal legs, the big iron stove with its pots simmering, the old Calvinator from 1950, the metal kitchen table, and plastic chairs. I watch you roll out dough for pasta gel to be quiet, you'd say, and work at super speed. Today, when we walk into your hospital room, you do not speak of your illness Do not mention the doctor who tells you bluntly you have three months at most to live. Your shrewd, sharp eyes watch us, but you do not cry. Soothsayer, healer, tale-teller, always ready with a laugh and a story, ready to offer coffee, cakes, advice at your oval kitchen table, your chair pulled close, and your hands always full. We are like little children gathered around your bed, Al with his doctor's bag full of tricks and medicine. Laura in her nurse's uniform, her hands twisting, and me, my head full of words that here in this antiseptic room are no use, no use at all. We wait for you to get up out of that bed, start bossing us around the way you always did. Tell us a story with a happy ending one in which the oil of Santo Rocco that you rub on your swollen belly each night works its elusive miracle. Soothsayer, healer, tale-teller, there was nothing you could not do. Tell us again how the bluebirds came to sing at your window that January when Al was so sick, all the doctors said he'd die. I think... What what I've discovered is that despite years of education, there's a part of me that still is very um, attached to a kind of earth mother that I think of as living somewhere in my belly. And I think of her, of, of having gotten her from my mother, but I try to give her to my students as well because I think when we write, we're going down into a cave inside ourselves and if we, if we write from that place, we can move people to laughter or to tears or to making the hair on their arms stand up. If we don't write from that place of truth telling and that place where everything that's extraneous in the world, all the things that try to take us away from what's real in, in the modern world. If we don't write from that place, we let those things defeat us. And so while I think of it as an old lady who lives in my belly, I think, of it's, I think it's in everybody. And I think we've been taught not to listen to that, not to listen to the sound of that wise old voice that's inside us, and that it's really important for all of us if we're going to live in the world to be able to find a way to hear that voice. The Greeks thought that poets had one less layer of skin. I always tell my students one less layer of skin. That's what you have to cultivate. And uh, the Greeks thought the poets had one less layer of skin and that they were the ones who would, they would send to the oracle to hear what the gods had to say. Because they thought the poets could hear it and would be sensitive enough to hear it and then could bring it back to other people. In a way, I guess what I try to encourage in my students is the belief that the stories they have to tell about their lives, about what it means to be human, and what it means to be a son or a daughter or a mother or a a grandmother or a granddaughter is an important story. Despite what some academics say that it's not important who needs another poem about a grandmother, I say, no, that is exactly what we need because that's the way we pass our culture and our ideas onto other people by remembering the stories. I think of a, um, uh, what is her name? Breath Eyes Memory. Oh, uh, Yes, Edwidge Danticat, uh, who has a part in one of her books. I don't remember if it's in, in Crick Crack or but her mother is braiding her hair and she is washing the pots and the mother has her recite the names of all the Haitian women who were part of her ancestry. And while the mother is braiding her hair and the kid is washing the pot, the girl is reciting the names of her ancestors. In a way, I think that's what we all have to learn to do. If we're going to save the past and save memory and save our lives and save ourselves against everything in modern life that wants to crush us and take what is human away from us. Okay, I'm going to stop preaching. <laughs> uh, I couldn't find it. I wanted to read you a poem about my mother only going to the third grade, but I'm a little disorganized lately, and I couldn't find it. Um, So I'm going to read a poem about my about my husband and myself when we were young. Um, I know that's hard for you to imagine. You're probably saying to yourself, was she ever young? Is that possible? Um, But actually, it is possible, and um, this is called Driving Into Our New Lives. That time years ago... Driving across mountains in West Virginia, both of us so young we didn't know anything. We were 28 years old, our children sleeping in the back seat. Your fresh Ph.D. in your suitcase, we head out toward Kansas City. We've never been anywhere. We decide to go the long way around instead of driving due west. That time, years ago, driving across mountains, your hand resting on my knee, the radio playing the folk music we loved, Pete Seeger, Joan Baez, or you singing songs to keep the children entertained. How could we have known what was to come? We were young. We thought we'd be healthy and strong forever. We were certain we were invincible because we loved each other, because our children were smart and beautiful, because we were heading to a new place, because the stars in the cold black West Virginia sky were so thick they could have been chunks of ice. How could we know what was to come? And I'm going to read another poem about us as young people because I'm going to read some other poems about us as older people. Um, and this is called 90s. At my bridal shower, somebody gave me a pink see-through nightgown and pink satin slippers with slender heels and feathers. The gown had feathers on it, too. I've always hated my legs, and even then, when I was still thin and in good shape, I didn't want to wear the nightgown or the slippers, didn't want to parade in front of you like some pinup. But I wore them anyway, all those negligees I got as shower presents, sleazy nylon I didn't know was tacky. When I wore shorty nightgowns, I'd leap into bed, not wanting you to notice how the nightgown revealed what I thought of as my biggest flaw. In all the young years of our marriage, I wore a different nightgown every night, not that it ever stayed on for long. And afterwards, I'd pull it back on, not wanting our children to find me naked in our bed. I felt so sophisticated in those nightgowns, so like the ones Doris Day wore in movies. Only years later, when my daughter buys me a nightgown made of soft and smooth blue silk, do I realize that the first ones I owned were cheap imitations of this, the one I hold now to my cheek. Grateful to have been once what I was. How lucky I am to have loved you in nylon, in silk. And my own incredible skin. Um, and I'm going to read a couple of poems about, uh, my husband has early onset Parkinson's disease. And I har- I was horrified to realize that he's had it now for 20 years. And, you know, it's, it's a gradual disintegration. It's a disease that robs you of just about everything that you can imagine. And... Um, and sometimes it's such a gradual disintegration that you don't even realize that it's that it's happening until you're away for a few days and then you look at the person and and you realize just how changed that person is recently i saw a picture of my husband when we were when he was a young man my daughter was about not even 2 years old and he was holding the flap of a tent for her we we had gone camping and I looked at him, and he looked so incredibly young. I, it just, you forget, really. And then I turned around, and I looked at him in his wheelchair, and I thought, oh, my God, I didn't realize. Um, anyway, this is called The Ghosts in Our Bed. The mahogany four-poster bed your mother left us is high up off the floor. It folds us into the smell of lavender and sheets sprinkled with violets, the thick blue and green comforter. For years, we are happy in it, lusty and young and so alive together, this safe place to which we return each night to lie in each other's arms, warm and exactly where we want to be. Now, when we climb into our bed, those people for so many years were ourselves, the ghosts that we live with, sleep between us. You've become so fragile, you're always cold, and need extra blankets, and you sleep so quietly, your arms folded across your chest, that I wake up in the night, I have to reach out to find you, because I'm not certain you're there. You used to take up so much space with your energy and strength, the big bones of your body. I pile blankets on you now, your face rigid and frozen, even in sleep. The ghosts of the future hover over us, reminding us every night of how much more we have to lose. Even as our old ghosts whisper, remember, remember. I fall asleep with my hand on your shoulder to keep you with me as long as I can. I want to read um, a poem about him that that is a little more complicated um, and I think that one of the things that happens when you deal with a very long illness like that is that your feelings are never all one thing or another. And I think in any long relationship or any long uh, whatever relationship it is, there are moments when you don't understand each other, and moments when you do, and moments when you're impatient, and moments when you when you are not. Shame. Today I was thinking about shame and how much it is a part of everything we do. I bet that way I was ashamed at 10 to say to my cousin that my mother mother asked me to buy toilet paper as though my grown-up male cousin didn't use toilet paper and wasn't stuck with all those messy bodily functions we have to plan our lives around. The public bathrooms that I need for them remind us of our humanity, a cosmic joke on us so we won't forget how rooted we are to the earth and not the ethereal beings the nuns wanted us to be. Today I was thinking about shame, and I see Dennis, thin and frail and naked, the skin stretched tight over his big bones, not an ounce of fat to cover him, the skin skin blue and translucent as he crawls from the bedroom on his helpless legs to the bathroom. How ashamed he is, as though this illness were a failure of his own manhood, and he to blame how he pounds his fists on the floor in frustration, how he scuttles into the bathroom and closes the door after I see the dark well of sorrow in his eyes. Today I am thinking about shame and wish it were only toilet paper or a red splotch on my dress or my inability to learn the periodic table in chemistry that made me feel it. Instead of my convoluted feelings about my husband's illness, how nothing in our lives is all one thing or another, not love Not grief, not anger, but always mixed with its opposite emotion. I see Dennis crawling along the floor, and I am struck with the acts of grief, a terrible pity that can do no good. But mixed in with it, the shame of my own impatience when he can't remember something I told him two minutes ago, or when he struggles for 20 minutes to open a package and won't accept help, or when he insists he can walk down the stairs and falls. The corrosive shame of my quick annoyance, the shame of my lack of patience, the shame of feeling that his illness is a deep and muddy river in which we both will drown. And I'm going to read a poem uh, called uh, My Daughter's Hands. I, I don't, uh, because my daughter is also a professor, I've been very hesitant about sharing poems about her, because she went on a date, um, and uh, somebody had looked her up on the web, or and my name came up, and a poem about her when she was 14 came up. and. Um, she, she was kind of embarrassed because the man said, "I know all about you," and she said, "What do you mean?" And he said, "I read that poem about you when you were 14." And she goes, "Oh no, I told her to say this." She said, "No, that's about my sister. <laughs> it's not about me." So wait a minute. I, I just, uh, I just have to find it. My daughter's hands. My daughter tells me she has grandma's hand, hands, referring to her father's mother who lived with us for nine years after she had a heart attack. Later, she went senile and imagined people were coming out of the TV to get us. She called me over to her ten times a day to warn me. My daughter's hands are strong with pronounced veins, and she is convinced they are her grandmother's. She remembers Grandma fondly the way she'd serve bowls of spaghetti or count out the meatballs so each child would have the same number and how she'd put M&Ms in the tin pie plates for them. She does not remember the grandmother who was so angry finally that she made a hole in the wall with her rocker, but rather the woman who cooked bacon for her and bought Sara Lee cakes. I tell my daughter, I think her hands are like mine, and my hands come down to me from my mother, the same square shape, the small fingers. If, look, if you looked at our hands, you'd think we were delicate, but we never give up, keep working until we're too sick to move. Sometimes when I look at my hand, I imagine my mother reaching for me, as she did so often when she was still alive. Imagine her hand brown from all the gardening she did, tough and calloused. Imagine that she is still sitting with me when I see Dennis slumped and broken in his chair, when he says, I can't do this anymore, and I use her hands to give him the courage to go on, just as my daughter uses her hands to pat my back while I cry. And, um... I'd like to read a poem about my grandmother, um, called Donna Lauda. And my, my grandmother, my father was 92 when he died, and he waited until a couple months before he died to admit that his, his father, I knew his father had gone to Argentina, but I didn't know the father had deserted his mother. He didn't mention that. Seven children they had, and, um, they, he met her when she was 16, or they got married when she was 16, and they had one child after another and then one day he said to her um we're going to visit relatives in New York and he took her to New York City and then he put her on a boat and took her back to Italy and then um he uh, he went to Argentina himself and basically he came back well at first they had six children then he came back to be in World War 1 because you know the Italians had to go back and serve in World War 1 and uh, um, she got pregnant again and, um, and then when that child was a couple of years old, he went back to Argentina and he had a whole different family and eventually he forgot to send money and he forgot to, he forgot her completely. And she was 24 when he left the first time. So she spent the rest of her life until she was in her nineties on top of this mountain. Um, and I said, how did she stay alive? And he said, well, you know, she made those tablecloths, you know, she did that very delicate sewing. And I said, that couldn't have kept her alive. And he said, well, uh, the, the priest housekeeper brought food to them and that's how they stayed alive. She did this needlework and people came through the town and they would buy, she was a wonderful did very fine needlework, work, and she got paid to do that, but it was a few, you know, they gave a little bit of money to these women. She couldn't have kept all those children alive if the priest's housekeeper hadn't brought food, because the way they paid the priest was to give him food. So the woman would bring food to my grandmother, and that's how these kids grew up. Anyway, my father said, why well, I said, why didn't you tell me that before? And he said, I thought it would be disrespectful to my father to talk about it. And after all, he said, you don't know what was going on in their marriage. I thought it was very kind of him, but also I'm saying, what? (laughs) Anyway, my feminist side said, are you crazy? Um, Donna Laura they called my grandmother when they saw her sitting in the doorway, sewing delicate tablecloths and linens. Hours of sewing bent over the cloth, an occupation for a lady. Donna Laudo, their big house falling to ruins around her head. Donna Laudo's husband left for Argentina when she was 24, left her with seven children and no money, and her life in that southern Italian village where the old ladies watched her from their windows. She could not have taken a breath without everyone knowing. Donna Lauro each day sucked on the bitter seed of her husband's failure to send money and to remember her long auburn hair. Donna Laura, who relied on the kindness of the priest's housekeeper to provide food for her family. Everyone in the village knew my grandmother's fine needlework could not support seven children, but everyone pretended not to see. When she was 90, Donna Laura still lived in that mountain house. Was her heart a bitter raisin? Her anger so deep it could have cut a road through the mountain. I touched the tablecloth she made, the delicate scrollwork, Try to reach back to Donna Laura through her life, shaping itself into lace patterns and scalloped edges from all those years between her young womanhood and old age. Only this cloth remains old and perfect still, turning her bitterness into art to teach her granddaughters and great-granddaughters how to spin sorrow into gold finish with the poem about my father, which I always finish. So if you've heard me before, I always finish with this poem because I was so mean and awful to my father uh, that I feel I owe him this poem. Um, I was always telling him what was wrong with him and that he would drink his coffee out of a saucer. Uh I don't know if you've seen Europeans. They pour the coffee into this little saucer and then they sip from it. And I thought that was so gross, and I'm yelling at him because he did this, and just, anyway... Daddy, we called you Daddy when we talked to each other in the street, pulling on our American faces, shaping our lives in Patterson slang. Inside our house, we spoke a southern Italian dialect mixed with English, and we called you Papa. But outside again, you became Daddy, and we spoke of you to our friends as my father. Imagine we were speaking of that father-knows-best TV character in his dark business suit carrying his briefcase into his house, retreating to his panel den, his big living room and dining room, his frilly-aproned wife who greeted him at the door with a kiss. Such space and silence in that house. We lived in one big room, living room, dining room, kitchen, bedroom, all in one, dominated by the gray oak dining table around which we sat talking and laughing, Listening to your stories, your political arguments with your friends. Papa, how you glowed in company light. Happy when the other immigrants came to you for help with their taxes or legal papers. It was only outside that glowing circle that I denied you. Denied your long hours as night watchman at Royal Machine Shop. One night, riding home from a date. My middle-class American boyfriend kissed me at the light. I looked up and met your eyes as you stood at the corner near Royal Machine. It was nearly midnight, January, cold and windy. You were waiting for the bus, the streetlight illuminating your face. I pretended I did not see you, let my boyfriend pull away, leaving you on the empty corner, waiting for the bus to take you home. You never mentioned it, never said that you knew how often I lied about what you did for a living or that I was ashamed to have my boyfriend see you, find out about your second shift work, your broken English. Today, remembering that moment, still illuminated in my mind by the street lamps gray light, I think of my own son and the distance between us greater than miles. Papa, silk worker, Janitor, night watchman, immigrant Italian, I honor the years you spent in menial work slipping down the ladder as your body failed you while your mind so quick and sharp longed to escape. Honor the times you got out of bed after sleeping only an hour to take me to school or pick me up. The warm bakery rolls you bought for me on the way home from the night shift, the letters you wrote to the editors of local newspapers. Papa, silk worker, janitor, night watchman, immigrant Italian, better than any father knows best father, bland as white rice. With your wine press in the cellar, with the newspapers you collected out of garbage piles to turn into money you banked for us, with your mousetraps, with your cracked and calloused hands, with yellow teeth. Papa, dragging your dead leg through the factories of Patterson. I am outside the house now, shouting, your name. Okay. anybody have to, Don't feel obligated if you don't want to. Go ahead. Yes. My um, question is uh, from what I've been so far, uh, you know, commend thank you
1: for coming. Uh, but second, um, I've heard a lot about the language to an absolute family. And I was wondering, do you?
3: The family stuff, um, you mean the work that I, I do a lot of poems that are um, about my family and, and I've kind of, my mother did piece work in a factory, which means that they paid her for each piece that she sewed. She got a penny or something like that, you know. And then at the end of an hour, there would be a pile, so she might make 25 cents or something like that. I feel in a way that I am doing piecework on my mother and on our ancestors because when you come from another country, there's often no one to tell you the stories of people, so you have to do a lot of digging. In reference to poems that I do that are more imagistic or more... Um, political i put as i put a lot of myself into everything it's hard for me to separate because everything that i do even my political poems i don't i do not write general political poems i write political poems based on what i understand is going on in this country right now and the kind of prejudice and problems that we have right now but i look around me at the people i see around me i I started a poetry center in Patterson, uh, which is a city that has seen better days in terms of economic times. And I try to really look at the people around me. I, I celebrate them, I really do. I try to celebrate the people I see struggling so hard, just as we struggled. When I see the new immigrants who are really a big part of life in Patterson, it kind of opens the door of memory for me because when I see them walking with their their mother or uh, going to school or wearing the Arab headscarf or whatever it is, I see that we're all human and that our humanity is what connects us. And that's what I don't want to write political poems that are general rants against politics. I always want to root them in something that I know or that I see when I was taken on a tour of the Passaic County jail I had nightmares I have to tell you I had nightmares I still get kind of creeped out when I think about it it was so awful and so awful they had six people in a cell meant for two they had people sitting sleeping under and they were showing us this proudly as though they had done something fantastic they had people sleeping under the bunk. I'm claustrophobic. I, I I was have. I couldn't breathe. I'm thinking, oh my god. Then they took us to the day room, and there were about 300 people in the day room. And they had the televisions on full blast and people screaming and talking. Well, when I wrote about that, I wrote it from my perspective of seeing that. They had a guy going to the bathroom on a toilet. They're taking us through. There's no door on the toilet. And 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 they're proud of the fact that they get $48 a prisoner from the state and they only sell, they only spend 24 I will never, never forget that place as long as I so I wrote a poem that described it exactly, the way they allow them to go upstairs. Fifty guys can go upstairs once a month on the gym on the roof. Okay? If they've been good. I'd like to know how you could be good in a place that's so crowded. I'd also like to know why almost everybody in the jail was either black or Hispanic. I really find that very curious. What happened to all the white um what happened to all the white prisoners? Where are they? How come they're not in there? Anyway, I was really angry, so I sat down and I wrote the poem. But it's always from my own vision. I, I try to, I worry when I hear political poems that are general statements. I write a lot of letters to the editor. I write to my congressmen so often that they now write me, Dear Maria. Uh, they do. I mean, it. they know who I am at this point because I write about every two or three days they get another letter from me because I think what's happening is horrible. So I keep writing, but I don't want that in my poems. I want when I'm writing to try to change what's going on in a poem, I want it to be rooted in something that I have seen or experienced rather than in something that's coming from my head. So I save my intellectual political arguments for the letters that I write to the editor and the letters that I write to the and the emails and if they're sick of me. But my father was in that tradition. My father couldn't, his English was was terrible, actually, but he could read wonderfully well, and he knew politics, and he understood, like, you could ask him about any little war that was going on in the world, and he knew about it. He wanted me to take him, he was in a wheelchair, he was 90 years old, he said, the American people have fallen asleep, you need to take me to Washington in my wheelchair, we need to march on Washington. Because... The people are asleep and we have to wake them up. That's the kind of person he was. And he wrote letters to the editor, which I had to fix the English because it was a little, the English was a little botched up, but the ideas were great. So he had that feeling that you couldn't just live in the world and be for yourself alone, that you had to try to make the world a better place, that you had to try to to reach out into that world and, help other people and try to make the world a better place. And I think that that certainly has been the way I've tried to live my own life. And I've tried to teach my children, my daughter, perhaps with more success. Oh, no, I should shut up. Uh, But anyway, um, and, and tried to teach my children to do the same thing, that if you live only for yourself, you're not anything. And that you have to try... I've done it with poetry. My mother used to do it with food. My father used to do it by writing wills for people who couldn't do it themselves or taking people to the consulate to send to sell property in Italy and that kind of thing. He would take them because he he learned how to negotiate the system in his broken English. Anyway, that was a longer answer than you probably wanted, honey. You know, I wonder if you mentioned that uh, what my very Thank you, darling. <laughs>
1: I'm wondering why when the concept of the excited special is something to never or Anna I why the, I think it was the you second know, have concept being uh, dark hair and out skin is not,
3: Well, I think that there there was a big change. I I think when I was growing up, I'm older than you are, and when I was growing up, it was a very negative thing. I mean, I don't know anybody my age, but if you were not, you know, there's probably nobody my age in here. But anyway, um, if when when I was growing up, it was really a very negative thing, and I internalized that image. The image that we were presented with, I just wrote an essay about this, about Dick and Jane, and the way I looked at those children and thought – i 'm not like that, my family is not like that. I am the wrong social class. My house looks nothing like this. Their doghouse looks better than my house. You know I, It made me feel always I have this negative feeling about myself and a negative feeling about my heritage and Then it took me a long time to realize and that that a lot of that means that you 're erasing everything that you really are, and that that goes across. A lot of racial and ethnic lines, it's not only Italians that have felt that, it's people from lots of ethnicities and races who felt that they didn't fit the mold of uh, of what somebody was supposed to be, what kind of social class, that we didn't look like the people on television. We didn't see anybody on television who looked like us. Um I didn't even get a television until I was eleven actually, but but even then, you just didn't see anybody who looked the way we did. So I had this image of myself as very dark and very foreign looking and um, very unacceptable to American eyes. so I tried to marry America is what I tried to do. Mm-hmm. My daughter wrote a very uh a wonderful essay about me, in which he talks about that. And I, I really think that's exactly what I tried to do, because I didn't understand that being Irish was not really American either. It didn't, I mean, I I had no idea that that, that was not considered to be American. I mean, he had light hair, he had blue eyes, you know. Uh, to me, he looked American. He lived in a white colonial. His parents were, had gone to college, you know. For me, uh, it was as though I really was trying to marry America. And then I was about 40 when I thought, the hell am I doing? Why am I doing this? What is the most important thing in my life? What What are the values that I really have? The values from my mother and father, the things that I really want in my life are nothing to do with this whole thing I thought I wanted. This... Exterior Barbie image that I thought I wanted, and and so I start. That's when I took back my name. I said, "Hey, to hell with you! You don't like it." And I still go to colleges in the middle of this country where they they try to avoid saying my name as much as possible because Montezuma they have a little difficulty. So they try to they try to get around it. They'll call me Maria Gillen or they'll go Maria <laughs> Gillen that kind of, because they can't say it. because it's and in fact the head of the Dodge Foundation actually said to me he said um, why did you take back your name? It's so hard to say. Um, and I said, because I had to reclaim what I was ashamed of for so many years, because what I was ashamed of was the best part of myself. And it's what I want to give to my children, that sense of grabbing on to pride in what we are. And the interesting thing is my daughter and I did a book called Unsettling America, an anthology. And when we did that, looking at all these ethnic groups and all these racial groups, I realized so clearly in putting that book together that what separates us often is social class. And what separates us Less even than race and ethnicity is social class, and that if we looked at the way people looked at themselves and their own identity, what we saw is a lot of people from lots of races and ethnicities attempting to erase themselves, wanting lighter skin or wanting to be more middle class or wanting not to be loud and not to be um, not to call attention to themselves, wanting to be what they saw as the perfect American because that 's what we were held up. That's what was held up to us as the thing that we should be. And I think in 10 years after after I was growing up, think by then we had Black is Beautiful. We had a whole shift in the way people looked. And still, look at all this anti-immigrant uh, 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 stuff that's going on now. It's not like it's ch- it's changed and it's better than it was, but it isn't 100%. And still, the, you know, you scrape away the layers and there's still an awful lot of pushing to conform and to be a real American. I hear it in the college where I am, where you, I'll, I'll hear people talking Spanish. And I'll hear people go by and go, well, why don't they talk English? What's wrong with them? Why can't they learn the language? Let them, and I remember going downtown with my mother in 1953. Gives you an idea of how old I am. But anyway, um, Going downtown with my mother and somebody, and my mother going, shh, don't speak, don't speak Italian, Shhh, shh, 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 don't say anything, because, and people, and somebody passing us and going, why can't they speak English? What's wrong with them? So, you know, I'm not so sure that it's changed dramatically. Uh, yeah, I just want to
1: comment on I'm uh, thank you for being here. Amazing. Um, as, as a daughter of immigrants, I know that in my family, there was always this intense, Shame about poverty, about not being able about being
3: with accents. I was never taught language. There was just
1: a lot of shame. Shame. to you know, speak English and correct English. I need like go to school. You have to kind of blend it. Right. And um, I noticed when you're writing, you're, you're very honest to put it all out there. And I know when I write, and I let my mom or my family read my
3: head, they have a fit. Oh my God,
1: that's not true. Been, you
3: know, all this Well, it's whitewashing, and also, I think if you're a writer, what you have to say is, this is my memory of it. It might not be your memory. Write your own poem. Uh, you know, I can't write your poem for you. Write your own poem. Write your own story. But this is the way I remember it. And, you're, you know, what happened with us is we were taught to be ashamed. Uh, I can remember two teachers standing in front of a room when I was in seventh grade and saying, They're having this conversation in regular voice. Look at her. What a scared little rabbit. I bet her father beats her. Now, my father was the kindest soul. He didn't even get mad at his father who deserted them. He was the kindest man you ever wanted to meet. But I was so humiliated. I'm sitting in the front. I knew that everybody in the class had heard it. I wanted to crawl under a chair. So we were taught in in to be ashamed first of all of social class of the broken accent of the the broken english of not having money of fi in italian it's called mala vigura. and it means basically um don't don't make a fool of yourself and don't uh shame your family by letting people know that we're you know, we're having economic difficulties. So when you have company, you always put out your best stuff and you, even if you're using your last five cents, you serve people good food and good stuff to drink and you give them the last five cents because otherwise it's, it's a shame on you and on your family. And, but I think if you're a writer, all you can say is, look, this is the way I see it, and I'll tell you a very funny story about my mother. My mother wanted me to write poems like the kind of poems that are on the back of mass cards, and um, and the poems she the poems she learned in Italy when she was a girl, which were all um, basically poems, very um, very li- very lyrical, very rhymed, uh, very uh, poems about tulips and daffodils and that kind of thing and that's what my mother wanted me to write and she said to me well you know don't tell my secrets in your you don't write about me I don't want my secrets known and then when my brother first opened his doctor's office my mother went to clean because she didn't think anybody else could clean so she put this rag on her head you know the rag anybody know the rag that I'm talking about you know the rags. You see, you wrap this rag around your head, keep the dust off, okay, and she's in there sweeping and vacuuming, and he was doing blood tests, so somebody was waiting for a blood test, and the nurse wasn't there. My mother was there vacuuming, and my sister had put my book out. And with, please do not steal, because my books kept disappearing out of the office. Please do not steal office copies. So this woman picks this up, and she's reading, and she says to my mother, do you know who this is? Is this woman related to the doctor? And my mother said, "I think, um, I think it's this doctor's sister." And she got out of there fast. She never went back. She was so embarrassed. She goes, "Oh, you write all about our family. Everybody has to know our business." Uh So you know, you're going to get a little bit of that. And I think that's true in, particularly in ethnic homes. But I think there's a lot of secrets all over the place. And the more I have students from different social classes and different ethnicities and races, the more I see that this business of keeping secrets in the home and not telling those secrets outside of the home is something that a lot of people are subjected to. The shame may be particularly an ethnic thing or a racial thing, much more so. And what we found when we were doing Unsettling America is it was though... You could take a poem by an Asian uh American and a poem by an Italian American and a poem by an African American, and they'd all be talking about um their mothers, for example. And it was as though they were singing the same song. It was so incredible. We had this big festival at um Passaic County College where people came from 26 states, and it was so wonderful because suddenly people were talking to each other on a level of being human and not feeling as though... They were separated by whatever ethnicity or race they were because in a way this opened up and it showed the similarities that people have in the way that they feel about their families and the way that they feel about the world and the things that they value. So I think if they, that was such a wonderful experience to see that happen. Anyway, I talk too much. <laughs> Anybody else with a question? Yeah. She She's going to yell at you now, Maria. It
1: does make
3: the best poetry. Make the best poetry. That's right. That's because you were so fantastic that we can't ever, as my daughter says, and I can never get away from you. Uh <laughs> I thought you wanted poems written about mothers. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> At my age, that's
2: it.
3: At your age, that's it. You don't want any more. I, I think you have to put that into a poem. I expect to see that in a poem. At my age, that's it. Well, thank you very much. You're a wonderful audience and uh thanks for coming out. And if you want to ask me a question individually, you can come up and ask me a question.
1: Thank you for coming. Um, Maria has a certain number of books that if you're interested, uh, she'll be sitting over here. Um, the next reading is the 19th. Jane Jane Augustine, Augustine will be reading in the same place right here. Thank you.
0: This concludes our podcast. Our thanks to Maria Masiati-Gillen for her thoughts and readings and for allowing us to share this podcast with the wider community. For more information on the podcasting initiative at St. John's University Libraries, please email us at eservices at Thank Thank you.